Okay. This is it, Murph. It is. This is almost it. This is almost it for the year. We've got one more episode after this, but this is episode 126, constituting yeah. the 126th attempt to silence us. We shall not go quietly into that dark night. I think that was that Independence Day. Isn't that what the president said right before uh, the aliens attacked? Yeah, I don't know. That sounds good. Hey, but we're like a cheap penny, man. We keep returning. We keep we're like hemorrhoids. We keep flaring up. <laughs> you can't get rid of us. Can't get well, guys. Welcome back, episode one twenty six, Game of Crimes. You know who I am. You know who he is. But in case you don't, I'm Morgan, and you are who are Murph. you this week? Murph. I'm Murph. You Murph. Can't remember well, that? Back, I can't guys. remember my real name. Can't remember. It's it's his stage name. It's what he uses in the movies. We'll talk about that in a second, too. Hey, guys, real quick. Thanks for joining us. Just some quick housekeeping. Head on over to Apple, Spotify. Hit those five stars. You guys help us out when you do that. Share the love. Share the show. Let everybody know that thing we call Game of Crimes. Just head on over there. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com, for everything. We put uh, merch there. We've got our... Um, episode list and our book list too. We just had another book come out, some great stuff. You guys are going to love this. Also follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but you got to be at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes because we just had fun. Actually, we had fun with our uh, latest episode of 911, What's Your Emergency? You got to hear the story about the two cops. <laughs> I'm 35. <laughs> 35. <laughs> I'm number four. <laughs> oh, man. I hope, I hope my brother, my friend, hears that. <laughs> he doesn't get pissed at me. It's a good story. It was so much fun. I, we, we're doing a couple, you know, we got that coming up. We got our Q&A coming up. We'll be recording that here in a couple days. Um, we've got um, You Can't Make This Shit Up, which definitely you can't. You know, we've got um, uh, our review. We did Black Klansman last time. That was an interesting, interesting movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. And I'm, am I still out of the doghouse? Uh, you're on secret probation. You've graduated from double secret to secret probation. So you got one more to go. All right. All right. And I've already got one in mind. So... It's going to be a good one. All right, it's going to be a good one. But guys, but join us definitely over there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff. Also, come join us at our fan page, Game of Crimes Fans, run by Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, who rules with an iron fist and a velvet glove. She can smack you and make you feel good at the same time. There you go. You can't beat that. You can with an iron fist, but with a velvet glove. So just head on over to Game of Crimes. Type in Game of Crimes, or head on over to Facebook, I should say. Type in Game of Crimes fans, and you will get admittance into the inner sanctum where hilarity, jocularity, and uh, sometimes, you know, individuality and uh, definitely fun jokes occur. Oh, there's some good stuff on there. These people, they have a great sense of humor. You're sick. And you people are sick. You need medical. You need <laughs> psychiatric help. But you know what? They came up from some. Well, they come up with some really good ideas for us to uh, topics to bring on the show. And did not one of our guests uh, we recently recorded come from somebody from uh, uh, our fans out there? Who was that? The one we just got through recording. Oh yeah, came from. Uh, <laughs> Holy cow. We just stopped recording 10 minutes ago. Who? What? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> it came from Carlo. Oh, come on, computer. Carlo Natasi. So we listened to you, brother. We listened to you and we got the recording. You'll we'll hear it after the first of the year. What episode? The one we just got through recording 10 <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> well, we've had others. I was wondering which one you're talking about. <laughs> Okay. You can tell we're going downhill from Oh, my from God. Here, it's definitely right? the weekend. Hey, guys. But hey, but. <laughs> 
Well, you guys know this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but you can definitely tell from this. What, Murph? <laughs> we never take ourselves serious, especially Morgan. Well, and in honor of this week's episode, um, I've got a collection of stories from this person's hometown. So, But Murph, before we get started, I have to ask you, you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? I know it's the weekend, but do you know what time it is? I think it's time for Small Town Police Blotter. Oh, no. Oklahoma, where the (laughs) felons are really, really weird. All right. Well, hey, guys, uh, you're going to find out about our guest in a minute, but he hails from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So I thought I would just go to the archives and pull some Tulsa stories. You ready, Murph? I'm ready. You know, we've we've had people that have been arrested and they wear some stupid shirts, you know, like, uh, you know, the dope shirts, like I'm really baked or, you know, hey, don't I'm hiding the drugs, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, Murph, if you were a let's say a smaller, more petite guy and uh, you're getting booked into jail and it was not a, like the crime of the century, but possession of marijuana with intent to distribute, contributing to the delinquency of a minor possession of paraphernalia and you're getting locked up, your T-shirt might send the wrong message, especially when it says, I would cuddle you so hard. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh. Because <laughs> there are people in jail that will take you up on that. Vaughn Tucker, 23, is going to learn a rough lesson. Oh, yeah, he might walk funny when he comes out. Uh, he hmm. was spent several hours in county lockup, uh, I think with his back against the wall. Uh, before he was released early Sunday after posting bond on the felony and misdemeanor counts. So, hey, pro tip there, Vaughn Tucker out of Oklahoma. Don't wear T-shirts like that. Uh, you might hear something like, you got a pretty mouth, boy. <laughs> you got a pretty mouth. Hey, come on over here. Uh, <laughs> so, hey, we're still going downhill. We are, boy, and it's going to get worse now. This next one, boy, this this one, this this next story stinks. Um, oh. Well, it's about a peeping Tom. First of all, he's a freaking pervert because he's spying on a woman and her young daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to Tulsa County Sheriff's reports, uh, Kenneth Webster Enlow, and when you see his booking picture, dude looks freaking creepy. Mm-hmm. He was uh, he was trying to get an up-the-skirt shot of a 29-year-old woman and his 7-year-old daughter. Um, it's where he was attempting to get it from. The woman told investigators that she was taking her child to the bathroom when she saw that there was a man underneath the toilet looking up at her and her daughter. What? He was hiding in the porta potty. Oh, down in. This the, is the best oh. part, though. After that, this is these are smart deputies. Deputies. After they were summoned to the park, Enlow was removed from the tank by rescue water workers who used a fire hose to clean off the grimy six foot, two hundred and forty pound suspect. Who, as deputies noted, was covered in feces. Oh, what an idiot. Oh, that is so gross. Oh. No, that's, that's the explanation. He claimed to investigators that a woman named Angel hit him in the head with a tire iron, then drove him in a 1972 Chevy Monte Carlo to the park and dumped him in the toilet. <laughs> right, 240 pounds. Now, you might think you almost might believe that until you go back and you find out... Um, uh, you know he's 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 had some problems before, so this isn't not like his first time with the law. So he was yeah. booked into uh, jail and held on a five hundred dollar bond. They still hit him with the peeping charge. What well, peeping? Yeah, instead charge. of climbing out of the toilet, he decided to pull his camera out and take somebody take a picture of somebody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you. You know what's even worse than that? This next one, Murph. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> okay. And when you see the woman and man duo. 
you're going to go, ugh. So this woman is facing arraignment Monday uh, on charges. She was engaged in lewd sex acts um, that were and her and her uh, boyfriend, you know, had made some home movies. Uh, they filmed, uh, he filmed her during some of these acts, according to the affidavit. Waylon sought to sell the obscene videos. Waylon is the woman with titles like Buddy and Lucky. Um, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Buddy and Lucky are dogs. Yeah, I kind of thought that. Yep, and here's why she rejected the plea deal. She was going to give a plea, but guess what? You get charged, you get arrested for that down in Oklahoma, they charge you, and you have to register as a sex offender, even for dogs. Yeah. You know what? Thank, thank the good Lord, we got some some fine law enforcement professionals out in Oklahoma, many of whom we've had here on the show. Cause <laughs> and one we got fixing to come up on the show, Cooter. But I'm telling you, if I'd run out there and I'd saw that dude hopping out of the toilet, I would have first of all had the rescue, had fire department pull him out and hose him off before I would even get him anywhere near my patrol car. Oh, and you know what? If he ran, I certainly wouldn't tackle him. Nope. You're just going to go to jail tired, buddy. Just keep going. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Murph, let's get to this because uh, you and I had the honor of being on this gentleman's podcast as well as bringing him onto ours. It is somebody you guys affectionately know him. You saw him when it was called uh, um, uh, Live PD, then A&E, got stupid. They took it off the air. And now it's back as On Patrol Live, and he's got his own show coming out, uh, which you'll talk about. But uh, Sean Sticks Larkin is our yeah. guest this week. Yes, sir. That's uh, had the honor of meeting Sean in person out in Oklahoma at uh, a, a conference with Wayne Stinnett, who was uh, episode 101 here on Game of Crimes. And, uh, and Sean was, he's, he's just a cop. You know, he's a cop who has done really well for himself. You're going to hear how he got involved with uh, PD Live and and uh, On Patrol Live and all the different shows he's involved with. But you know, I'm as he'll tell you, just like Javier and I, just like you, Morgan, we're doing things in retirement that we never thought, even never even dreamt about doing. So uh, Sean's, uh, you know, he's 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 been big in the news on some of his girlfriends he's had along the way and things he's got to participate in. And now he's a married man again and. Uh, just wish that we could have shown his video to show you the room he's sitting in, and you'll hear us describe it at the beginning of this interview. But <laughs> well, we decided we would have Murph wouldn't participate, obviously. But we we had an adult beverage. He says, "Well, I'm going to crack one open too. Wait till you hear the description of the beverage room." Oh my gosh, that he's sitting in. I told him, I, "Well, you hear me. You'll hear me tell him. My son, my oldest son, would love coming to visit you, Sean, in your man cave there because he's a connoisseur himself." And and. Um, Appropriately, you know, and quite, uh, you know, smartly, Sean refused to disclose the location of his house. <laughs> he says, I ain't telling you boys shit. Oh, my gosh. This, this is a great interview, and, and he's such a personable guy. I mean, somebody who has uh, attained the, the fame that he has and uh, hasn't let it go to his head, man. He's just, he's still, he still bleeds blue. Still a good old Midwest farm boy like me, but Murph, we won't hear about this, and we won't hear about Sean Sticks Larkin unless I ask you, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and uh, feces-friendly game of all? <laughs> feces-free. <laughs> feces-free game of crimes. Game of crimes, what do you think? Absolutely, everybody. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here we go with Mr. Sean Sticks Larkin.
You know, our next guest is the star of stage, the streaming screen, and the dude has the biggest collection of bottles I've seen in one video shot. And, and has probably been listed in several lawsuits. <laughs> ah, I'm, I'm, actually, I have a current active one going right now, believe it or not. So, <laughs> And to put a face with a voice, since it is a podcast, you've seen him on TV when it used to be called um, Live PD. And you notice they never made a show called Live FD. There was a reason why. <laughs> and then it's called On Patrol Live. And now he's got his own series on Fox Nation. The man, the myth, the legend behind the bourbon bottles, Sean Sticks Larkin. Welcome. Guys, pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, it's uh, we've been wanting to get you on the show for quite some time. I, know I was going to say, it's been schedule. a long time in the making. It's, uh, it's been mostly my fault, but I'm glad to be no. here. Well, no, we're returning the favor because I think both Murph and I have both been on with you, right? Uh, cocktails and cocktails. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of that, but you guys missed the magic before we got started. So uh, as guys do, we like to compare things. So uh, oh, well, we're well, comparing. Well, hey, back off that now just a little bit. I'm old. <laughs> on, my old on my OnlyFans for $9.99 a month, you too can see this comparison. <laughs> so. well, I'll tell you, I was, I was, I got this, I had to order this from Belgium. There's only one place. I had six boxes come in from uh, Belgium. Uh, and uh, one of them is the Hercule Perrault stout glass, and you saw the the little beer glass I had. And then I've got my Lacorn Viking horn full of beer. And you decided you were getting jealous, Sean, so you decided to go out and whip it out too. What'd you whip out? Man, I've uh, <laughs> I'm a bourbon connoisseur collector, and so ironically, where you, you happen to have your bottles handy, and I'm set up in my uh, my little den, I guess we'll call it, um, that's got my collection of uh, of bourbon and whiskey and whatnot. So that's what I've got behind me, and just to to make this thing proper, I poured myself a little drink as well. Uh, dang. Well, and we're not talking about like a couple bottles. Tell us how many bottles do you think you have there? <laughs> Man, so I kind of got into this. I didn't even um, – funny story. I worked for Anheuser-Busch when I was in college, and I drove a beer truck, so I was kind of a beer guy my whole life. And then I kind of got into the old, you know, vodka as I became sophisticated and older. Um but when we started with Live PD, one of the great things about that show, you know, it is live every Friday and Saturday night. And so after the show on Friday, we were do, you know, we filmed it there at the live, or I'm sorry, at the A&E headquarters in, in Midtown Manhattan, New York. And after the show, it didn't matter if you were a production assistant that ran and got coffee for people before the show, or you were a sound person, a, a lighting person, the producer, the, you know, it's, they have a, Emmy award-winning director by the name of John Gonzalez, everybody hung out together after the show and drank and had cocktails for about an hour or so before everyone went, went home. And so Dan Abrams and John Gonzalez, who's like I said, the director, uh, producer, he's a guy named John Zito. These guys were bringing like high-end wine and bourbon. And, you know, I was just cop dude from Oklahoma that drank beer. And so I started getting into it and started drinking this stuff with these guys. And man, once I got into the bourbon world, I was like, man, this is, this is pretty good. And then I started getting into the, the collecting of it. Um, and then I went all in and, you know, kind of the way I describe it, it's like, if you were a kid that ever collected baseball cards, there's, there's some that are out there. They're just very hard to get. And, and yes, they're worth a lot more, you know, than what the, the standard retail is on it. And, I have quite a collection here, I guess, if you were looking at it for investment purposes, but that's not it. Um, I've been very fortunate with everything that's come through this TV stuff the last couple of years. And um, I've tried to have this here. So friends, anybody that comes over, man, they have an opportunity to, you know, to have some really good 
bottles that you just can't walk into any liquor store and find. And, and, you know, and that's what I think this type of stuff is for. It's, you know, the opportunity for me to be able to have it, but to share it with people. Um, and, and this is kind of the spot when guys come over and we have a cocktail. Well, I, and you were showing us before we started recording here, I think you got more bottles than a liquor store does. Man, it is, uh, <laughs> it, it literally is set up like a liquor store in it here. Is. And, you know, I've got uh, <laughs> legit over, I think 400 or so different bourbons and whiskeys. And, uh, it's, um, everything from what they call a daily drinker that you can, you know, find in a store to some pretty, I mean, I've got, I've got, I think right behind my shoulder here, the one I'm pointing out with my thumb, I mean, that's a 1970, like it was, it was barreled, I'm sorry, bottled in 1970. And that's an old Weller 10 years. So, you know, that thing was put into a barrel in 1960. So um, the question is, do you have any Pappy Van Winkle? I do. I actually, I've got the whole lineup, man. So I have got, <laughs> I've got the 23 year, which I just got a couple, I don't know, six, eight weeks ago. Uh, I've got the a 23, a 20, a couple Pappy 15s. I've got the rye, the, what they call the lot B. And then there's one called the, that it's 50, 50 of people call it a Van Winkle product, but I've got that as well. So there's some, there's some couple like real specialty Van Winkles that are out there that are older and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're thousands upon thousands of dollars. I mean, oh, thousands my. and thousands. So, so these, some of these bottles in here, are several thousand, but. So the um, big question is you're so sophisticated now when you drink, do you hold your little finger out when you drink? Actually, I'm so sophisticated enough that somebody else pours it for me into my mouth. <laughs> so, and I make them hold their finger up. So. There you go. There you go. That's well, I gotta in tell charge. You, yeah. I don't have as many bottles as you. I have a healthy collection. I got a commercial beer fridge in the basement, but I'll tell you, kind of similar to beer. Um, I just had a big, well, for me, I announced it on our Patreon thing, but I just finished a milestone. I submitted my manuscript for my thriller book to a guy that I've work, been working with. He works with all the big authors like Jack Carr and Brad Thor. So I poured me one of the, it's actually the world's been rated the world's best beer. It's called West Vlerteren. And it comes from one of the uh, uh, Trappist monasteries over there. One bottle of that, 11 ounces, is 56 bucks just for wow. a single bottle. You want wow. a six pack, it's 300 bucks. So oh, that was well. my, that, you know, I don't drink those too often, but when I do, well, there's a reason. So. Listen, I, I can't be outdone here because you guys, you're, you're a beer guy, you're a bourbon <laughs> you got, guy. I know you got ginger ale. I <laughs> have a fantastic collection of Walmart water bottles in the no, refrigerator. Oh, that's high speed. Well, I, I've got I've got this a, a little Fuji water bottle over go. here next to me. So you know that's uh, <laughs> well, somebody's got to be I'm the designated driver with you alcoholics here. That's it. <laughs> well, and you know, like I, I, I mean, I was saying earlier before we went on the air. Yes, I have quite a collection, and I mean, I'm enjoying a bottle here tonight, or a, a you know, a glass. I just pour a drink, you know, if I'm home by myself three or four nights a week with a little, what they call like a little two finger pour, you know, just a small mm -hmm. little pour in the glass and just something I sip on while I'm watching TV before I'm going to bed. So I don't get drunk off of it, anything like that. It's just, uh, well, no, it's, honestly, it's the experience. I, I, it is. I call it decorations. I mean, that's kind of the yeah. joke I have with my wife. I'm like, Hey, I picked up a couple more decorations today, you know, cause they just go out on the shelf for, for looking at. So my oldest son, he would love to be right there in that room with all those bottles. Yeah. He, he likes yeah, well, it's a, there, There's a reason why nobody knows where I live. I'll tell you that. So, <laughs> well, that's the thing too, is I'll have a beer, you know, like about four to five nights a week, I'll have one of the beers, but it's like, but it's for the enjoyment of it. I've got, yeah. um, the other thing with Belgian beers too, is you got to get the right glass for it. So I have a glass. I think I have have a 50 or 60 different glasses just that go with the beer. So I always try and drink the beer in the right glass. I learned that when I was in Brussels, uh, went to the original Delirium Tremens Cafe. They had over 300 beers in there. Wow. Every beer had its own glass. Well, you know what? So 
I mean, ATF, if you got too many weapons, you got to get a fire, federal firearms license. I wonder if you have too many bottles of bourbon if there's a license you got to get. Look, that's a good question. Hey, I would like to know when and where in this country ATF is going, you know, after the, the alcohol portion of their name. Uh, that would be interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw so. I saw a little meme on Twitter that says, uh, I have 19 guns. When the ATF comes and takes them, how many guns do I have left? I said, I have 50 because I lied to the bastards. So. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, well, let's let's get started into this thing we call this thing of ours, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours. So, Sean, first of all, where the hell did you come up with the nickname of Sticks? Man, is this a... Are uh, you a drummer? Man, I've been asked that numerous times. I've been asked everything from, was I a drummer? Did I snap somebody's arm? You know, and things like that. And is that the current lawsuit? That is that is not the current. The current <laughs> lawsuit is, it's a BS deal as, you know, most as of them most typically of them are. are. Yeah, 100%. Um but I, I was doing my internship with the Tulsa Police Department, and which was back in 1995, six era. And the guys that I was riding with, it was two guys that were working in a unit that was called Footbeat at the time. And their sole purpose, their sole job responsibility was to patrol the housing projects. And they didn't take regular calls. Um, you know, this is like I said, mid nineties when crack cocaine and the violence that came along with it were, were you know, was just everywhere. Gangbangers hung out on streets, slinging dope and stuff like that. So they had, um, I rode with them every Friday was what my internship was. Now I was a 20, 20, 20 year old, 20 or 21 year old kid was not a cop. Um, they gave me a ballistic vest to wear. So I wore a vest and I had a flashlight. You were the designated target. <laughs> pretty much, man. Uh, pretty much. That's basically what I was. And uh, actually, it was kind of funny. Every time you you know stop and talk to some gangsters, they would ask who I was. And of course, I look like a young kid, but they would tell everybody like I was a federal agent that was there deciding if we needed more officers in the city. Um, and that's kind of because I had a vest on. So, you know, I was wearing plain clothes. But they get in a car chase with uh, with some guys, and one of the passengers bails out the car running, and I just jumped out and took off running after this guy, and I end up chasing him and catching him. And luckily, you know, like most people that run from the police, he wasn't combative. You know, he's just kind of you know passively resisting, actively resisting, basically. And uh, I held him down on the ground, but I didn't have handcuffs. I didn't have a gun. I didn't have OC spray. I didn't have a radio, any of this type of stuff. And so this other officer, his name was Mike Eckert. He catches up and gets the guy handcuffed that I'm just holding on the ground. And he's like, Hey, good job. You can't do that. Fuck stick. And <laughs> you know, he's like, I wasn't supposed to jump out the car. And so fast forward a year, um, we're in the police Academy and Mike Eckert, uh, happened to be one of the part-time firearms instructor instructors. So for the whole six month academy, you know, I'm running into him at the range the whole time. And he would just call me stick or stick boy, which was short for fuck stick. So get all the other officers start calling me this. I get out on the streets my whole career. Um, you know, I kind of worked in the gangster world and they just heard me called stick from the other cops. And for whatever reason, the streets kind of added an S to it. And they were like, sticks, this, sticks, that. And it just kind of morphed into sticks. And, it, you know, it's carried on, obviously, into you know, the TV world and just, it, it's a work-related name that has been my entire police career, has carried into the the media stuff I do now, but nobody in my personal life calls me it, but I answer <laughs> to it just the same. How about that? 
Hey, well, let's let's kind of rewind for just a second. So, thing of ours, how did you get started in this thing we call policing profession? I mean, you were talking about being a beer guy. Did you just uh, keep running into the cops that were, you know, hijacking a few six packs from you, or what's the deal? Yeah, no, man. So, uh, I'm the I'm the son of two parents that were career military people. Uh, my father was in for 32 years, and my mom was active for 20. Which branch? And, wow. Uh, both of them Navy. So, yeah, both of them Navy. Um, my my father actually ended up retiring as a command master chief. Um, you oh, know, yeah. he, was, he was, so is there a naval base in Tulsa? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the water here. we got a couple of nice lakes. Um, no, but I actually grew Navy. up. Yeah. I grew up in the Bay area. Um, I lived in the city of San Francisco, um, from seventh grade up through until I started high school. And then we moved to a suburb outside of San Francisco, uh, where I finished high school, but my parents divorced right before my senior year. And my father moved down to San Diego to take a, a job, you know, military job down there. Um, my mom, um, from the divorce, she had family that lived just outside of Tulsa, her mom and her sister. So she moved to Oklahoma. I actually stayed my senior year of high school up in the Bay Area with a friend of mine so I could finish school there. And my dad, because he joined the military, you know, fresh out of high school at 18. Um, and he was kind of that same belief. He's like, buddy, you finished high school. I've done my job. Good, you know, good luck to you. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't afford to stay in California as an 18 year old kid on my own. And I knew I wanted to be a police officer since probably, you know, I was 17 years old. Why? And where, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You said you wanted to be, I mean, you grew up military. My dad was army, uh, but uh -huh. we did the same thing, move around all over the place. But where did the law enforcement aspect come from? So just growing up, uh, you know, I think I started high school in 1988 and I graduated in 92 and just out there in the Bay area. Um, I was kind of one of these kids that was a, a hip hop kid. You know, I grew up listening to rap music and thought I was like this little, you know, gangsterish type kid and everybody I hung around was the same way, but I was always, you know, academically smart. And, you know, when things were happening out with my friends in the streets, I was always smart enough to keep myself out of trouble personally. But I was exposed to a lot. I saw a lot, and I just knew, man, I wanted to. I wanted to be a cop. Um, I liked the action of it. I liked the adrenaline of it. I liked. I liked dealing with bad guys. I mean, as silly as that sounds, that you know, even as a cop, I just. I think it was easy for me once I did become a cop. This white cop working predominantly in the black community where we have our gang problem here in Tulsa. It was very easy for me to understand a lot that went on in that community and to relate to people there in that community. Um, and it was just because of how I grew up and where I grew up at. And I think that had a lot to do with why I was successful working, you know, with criminal street gangs and whatnot. And it was just, like I said, it was something I just knew, you know, 16, 17 years old. I was like, Hey man, I'm gonna be a cop. And so I left the West coast, came to Oklahoma to go to college. Cause my mom lived out here. And I had plans on going back to the West Coast to be a police officer, did my internship in Tulsa, and they hired me right away. So been here since. Hey, going back to when you said you were a kid and you were hanging around, you're smart enough to leave. What's the worst thing you saw out in the Bay Area when you were a kid? Oh, man, dude, I saw not somebody get shot, but I saw, you know, guys shooting at each other. Um, I've been at a house party where someone's shooting. Um, you know, I was present when I saw people, you know breaking into cars and, you know, fights. I mean, we had a fight that happened at my high school that, um, that I witnessed where a guy 
used a chisel actually. And I didn't know, I thought he just didn't know how to punch. I thought he was like hammer punching this guy in the back of the head. And it turned out he actually had a chisel in his hand was hit into the guy's head. Jeez. This was as we were walking into school to start the day, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. Um, wow. Another night we were, I was in what's called the San Joaquin school district. And so we had Vallejo, El Cerrito, um, Fairfield, Vacaville and Napa. Napa was like all the little rich white kids and everybody else was kind of middle class, lower middle class. And we had been up in Napa one time at a basketball game and we got in a fight. The, go- the guys I was with, we got in a fight at the Napa basketball game and got kicked out. What was and the argument about, about pairing? To what to pair with the white or a red? That, or? That, yes, that was correct. We we did not know. We were more drinking like Cisco and Mad Dog and Old English 800. <laughs> well, Mad Dog so, 2020. Oh, my yes, God. So, hey, bro, <laughs> it was like two bucks. You can get messed up back then, you know? Oh, yeah. I drank a whole bottle of Mad Dog 2020 the night before I left on a little airplane to go to Fort Lost in the Woods Misery for eight weeks. Mm, I yeah. threw up on that plane for oh. like two hours. Oh. Yeah, that'll do you. That'll do you. Yeah, see, we were we were higher class in West Virginia. We drank Reunity. Re- oh, that is. Yeah, you're baller, man. Yeah, Bones, yeah. Farm, Bones Farm. I had the screw top of Bones Farm, too, man. We were, <laughs> That's right. That's man, right. I never got into Bones Farm. So, like I said, we would drink this stuff called Cisco, and it was like liquid crack. And I, they actually stopped making it. They, you could read about it they quit making it because it was bad um but we would it, it tasted so bad that there was a stuff called purple passion that came in a two liter and it was kind of oh, like yeah. a wine cooler and a two liter and that was like your chaser so you drank the uh the cisco and it was horrible but it did its job and then you drank purple passion just for the taste right afterwards so so on, on, the, see, on, the, on the east coast we call purple passion that's grain alcohol and grape juice well, there that's you part, go. well, that's a fraternity party. When I was in college, we had our purple passion. We call it our blue bunny party because after you drink enough of it, you saw blue bunnies, but it was purple passion. You'd get the old uh, bathtub, put oh, a yeah. liner in it, and start pouring in grain alcohol and oh, iced yeah. tea and stuff like that. Oh, man. Yeah. We've come a long ways, guys, with you, your Belgian beer <laughs> no, and me with I'm this. Looking at your, I'm looking at all your booze behind Walmart you. water. And, and his water, correct. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that's changed, pal, is the price of our, you know, that's the it. price you got of a better, our problem. A, yeah. a better budget to work with. That's right. Well, so you, you started, um, so did you apply anywhere else or was Tulsa kind of it for you? No, I had reached out and I'd actually spoken to Seattle, Denver, and San Diego, like as far as the process to to get started at each of those three places. And um, man, like I said, the, the guys that I did my internship with kind of helped guide me through the process, you know, of trying to make myself a better candidate for Tulsa. And, you know, at the time back then, um, they were really trying to recruit minorities and females. And, you know, being a 22 year old white male was tough. You know, I was young, didn't have any experience, anything like that. And so I actually went through our the Tulsa Police Reserve Academy as well, um, just to try to make myself a better candidate. And six month academy, I completed that. And I might have been a reserve for two or three months tops, you know, and I only just did a couple ride alongs. I think I worked like a, you know, a, a half marathon, you know, standing out there in my uniform type Traffic of Traffic control. Yeah, baby. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, I got called. I got hired. So I started the academy in January of 97. Nothing like going back to back to back academies, is it? Literally, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so the reserve academy, you know, because it's regular people that are volunteering that, you know, want to either one get into law enforcement or two, just, you know, other people that are successful in their community and whatever private world they work in. And they just, and they want to do something positive or they, you know, for the community. So you had me at like 22 years old in the Academy and you've got guys that are, you know, 45, 50 that are very successful businessmen, 
uh, going through this together. And I worked full time for Anheuser Busch. Um, I had to be to work at five thirty in the morning, Ooh. so I was getting off work one thirty or two in the afternoon. And I either had you know my college classes or the academy, so it was a pretty busy life back then. But wow, I loved it. I had a good time. You know, we've had some other uh, stars from Oklahoma law enforcement on the show here with us. Wayne Stinnett, you remember Wayne? Oh yeah, yeah, out of, out of Claremore. Yep, and uh, Brian Serber. Right. Up, oh, Brian Serber, dude. That guy is one sharp. How fast did he talk? Very, dude. I think I talk fast. I was trying to stay up with him. I was like, "Slow down!" I said, "You speak too fast." He goes, "No, you listen too slow, man." No, uh, that's I'd... it, man. That guy is sharp, sharp, sharp. And uh, you know, he's written a book and um, stuff like that. I've known Brian. I know both of those guys. I haven't worked much around Wayne. I mean, I know him out of Claremore, Rogers County area. But Brian Serber, I've been around him numerous times. So, how about a trooper really, named really Branson Perry? I don't, I know the name, I know who he is, but I've never personally met him. Yeah, he's somewhat of a legend, I think, in interdiction is what we're finding yep. out from other people. Yep, yep, All yep. studs, man. I mean, that you you know, there's a good legacy going out there in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah we, you know, we're very fortunate, you know. I mean, this, this the state as a whole is very supportive of law enforcement, despite the stuff, you know, that's going on in other parts of the country. Um it, it, it's very well supported here. And, you know, speaking for the Tulsa Police Department, we've required a bachelor's degree since 1997. And I'm not saying having a bachelor's degree makes you a better cop. I just think we have very well educated people that are coming into the job here in Tulsa. Um, you know, our academy is just a little over six months long. We more than double what the state requires for pretty much everything from mental health to firearms to, you know, legal law, you know, you name it. So we get a lot of you know, officers that come through that I think are pretty squared away. Um, again, I can speak for Tulsa, but I know the other agencies around are just as qualified, if not more as well. Well, yeah. you moved to Tulsa, you moved to Oklahoma. One of the biggest decisions anybody has to make moving to Oklahoma is you got to pick sides. So who is it? Cowboys or Whoop. Sooners? Boomer. Boomer, yeah, Sooner. I'm, okay. I'm a Boomer, Sooner. It was crazy. I had season tickets for years for OU for my family back when I was my first marriage. And I had four tickets. I've got two kids. So the four of us would go. And it came time for my daughter to go to college. And she actually went to Stillwater. So she went to OSU, Oklahoma State, and was a cowboy. Um, but now that she's got her degree from there and she's grown up and a little wiser now, she's back to rooting for the Sooners. So. <laughs> Um, they eventually kids away. eventually come around. They come, come back around. around. They come back around. Yeah. Nice. Well, let's talk about you getting started then on Tulsa uh, PD. So uh, you go through the academy, you get out. Tell us a little bit though about Tulsa. Cause you know, when you and I talked on your podcast, my sister and brother-in-law used to live in Tulsa. He actually used to, was a book publisher, Christian book publisher. Um, they were in the Oral Roberts Towers at that time, which it was called, and they got married on the third floor of the Oral Roberts Towers. I mean, just beautiful atrium, you know, the whole thing. Oh, yeah. So I'd been down to Tulsa a few times, but tell us about Tulsa, you know, like what county is it in? You know, how big is the city? How big was the department? Yeah, so the, the the city of Tulsa is actually split between three counties. The majority of it is within Tulsa County. Um, we do have a portion of it that's in what's called Wagner County and another part that is in Osage County. And Osage is pretty, I mean, that's that's kind of country area, you know. Um, well, how do you handle jurisdiction then? Are you sworn in all the counties then? So if you make an arrest within the city and let's say it's a, you know, a state crime, let's say, you know, ex-con with a gun, I don't know. If you are within the Osage County portion of the city 
you have to drive to book this guy up into Osage County Jail, which is up in Pahuska, about an hour away. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And it, I so mean, what did you it, do, drag them across the, the line into the other county? No, basically, if you wanted overtime, you went out and made an arrest in Osage so you can get the overtime for driving up there. And you have to go to court up there. So if you go to court, you get an all-day overtime deal. Um, or if you were like, man, I do not want to end up having to go to Pahuska at any point, you just never patrolled that portion of the city. Um, so there's pros and cons you can do. Um, and Wagner County, that's a portion of that's out in our East Tulsa area. And, and both of these areas are pretty small as far as what goes on in the city. The, the overall, overall majority of the city is within Tulsa County. So um, if you, let's say you had a chase that started in, um, you know, the main part of Tulsa. Uh, again, I mean, it's just, it depends on where you, in Oklahoma, does it depend on where you start as well as where you end up? Could you take them anywhere based on that? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be where you start. So if you started that in the Osage County portion of it, you would have to book the guy into Osage. Um, and, you know, it, it's kind of crazy because Osage is, like I said, it's very rural. It's country up there. And, you know, just as any courthouse you're in in at, depending on who your prosecutor is, depending on who your judge is, your sentencing could vary, you know, just between, you know, that type of stuff. And it would be the same type of thing out there in Osage. You know, they, they took things very serious because they didn't have a lot of violent crime, you know, that Osage County deals with, you know, they're dealing with like legit ranchers and things like that. And so if you had somebody that was arrested for a rape or drug trafficking, that was an Osage County, man, they kind of got the hammer put down when they were sentenced. Whereas in Tulsa, it's a daily thing to arrest somebody for, you know, guns and dope and, you know, violent crime is pretty regular. And so they just, the, the sentencing was not as harsh, I guess, as a way to describe it. So even the bad guys themselves didn't want to, they don't want to catch cases out in Osage County because they know. <laughs> uh, they, do. They, they know it's a little different. It look, I'm looking at a map here. It looks like there's a couple pretty good-sized Indian reservations right in north and south and west. Yeah, so just uh, – and and I'll say this to any of your listeners or you yourselves. You guys want a podcast. I'm not the person for it, but Supreme Court um, passed a deal a couple years ago called the McGirt decision. Yeah. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with it. It has really, really – people – Outside of law enforcement, I don't think have any idea how it has to do with up. jurisdiction, right? And sovereignty. Correct. So that's basically what it is. There was a guy, if I remember correctly, he was convicted for for I think molestation of a kid um, or rape of a of a minor, and he was um, of Native American, you know, blood had a card, and he challenged this thing went all the way to the Supreme Court that basically, you know, the state of Oklahoma that that his. The sovereignty, exactly that, that the state of Oklahoma or Tulsa County has not taken away the nation of that particular tribe, that it still existed there jurisdictionally wise. And the Supreme Court ruled in his favor. So it was completely dismissed. And we have had case, and I mean, I could go on and on and on, but there was one that happened out of like the Oklahoma City area where two suspects, one of Native American and one not, were convicted, I think, for a home invasion, like robbery, rape of an elderly woman. And the guy who was Native American filed a deal under the McGirt decision to have his case thrown out because, again, saying the state of Oklahoma didn't have jurisdiction over him because he was Native and, you know, the sovereignty. And they threw the case out on him. And so his co-defendant, who was not Native American, still sitting in prison for the crime, and the other guy got to go free. Um, and so now it has really jacked us up on 
victims and suspects of crimes. You know, we have to find out if they're Native American, are they a card-carrying Native American? And if in fact they are, either the tribe has to do the investigations or the FBI has to. So the FBI is not equipped to do murders, you know, gang murders. You know, that's not how they're set up. No, and that's they're not, not what they handle focus domestic on. violence cases or burglaries or stuff like that. Exactly. So it is, and that stuff is happening now. And, you know, and it's just, like I said, people outside of law enforcement just really don't have any idea how how tough this has made or just even unfair, in my opinion. You know, I mean, if it's, doesn't matter who you are, you know, the crime and the punishment should be a- applicable across the board. Man, so. that is, and I know I remember reading that because I think I've listened or I, I read what one prosecutor said, or maybe as a state attorney general, but it's basically that's going to upend. And the other thing too, they go back and revisit a lot of the other convictions, right? And so a lot a, of things are oh, getting yeah. thrown out. Well, there, there was a guy, um, you know, I'm not going to say his name to give him any credit here, but he's a, a violent street gang member. And one of our, you know, he's a Hoover Crip, one of the larger criminal street gangs in the country. And he's a guy here in Tulsa. He's a suspect in several shootings and a couple homicides has, you know, had felony convictions and, um, we had caught him with, with a rifle, you know, and with the 200 round drum magazines inserted into it. So he was being charged federally for it, admitted post, you know, post Miranda, it was his gun. He had it cause he's a gangster and he's protection. I mean, it was a lock solid case, but because of this McGirt thing that he was again, his sovereignty of the, the nation, as, you know, for his tribe all of his previous convictions were thrown out. And so now it's no different than me catching one of you guys with a rifle. It's, it's not a charge. So his his rifle charge for being a felon in possession of a firearm is completely dismissed as well because all of his previous convictions were dismissed. I mean, it's just baffling. So if he's off the reservation, though, is he fair game? It is. Yeah. So it's, it, it, well, the reservation covers a large portion of the city of Tulsa. You know, it's considered, I mean, they're, they're, you know, it, we've got, Cher- I think Cherokee and Creek both, you know, cover up a, a decent sized part of the city. So, you know, that's one thing every time a an arrest happens for a felony or, again, a murder, um, is your victim Native American? Is your suspect where, what what tribe did, did you guys, you know, did this happen at jurisdictionally wise? Wow. So I just yeah. pulled up uh, part of the re, and then this is what I remember saying. So it's basically said the court ruled in McGirt's favor, stating that the tribe continued to have criminal jurisdiction over all the land which reserve which was reserved for the Muscogee Creek Nation in an 1866 treaty yeah. with the government. Yeah, that so is a lot of land, my friend. No, it is. It's huge. I mean, that it it, it is. It is huge. It covers more of Oklahoma than it doesn't cover. You know, at this point. Yep. It looks like yeah, we've you, got and you know you got the Muscogees down south and the Cherokees to the east. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Seminole, Choctaw. Well, Murph, Choctaw. great way to take us a, a diverge. You know, just ask one question. No. <laughs> well, I saw that Jer- I saw that Jeremy Renner movie recently, Wind River. That's a great yeah. movie. It is. It is. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to dispense justice like that sometime? Oh my gosh, man! <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah. 
Absolutely. Thing. You're under a lawsuit right now. Yeah, and, no, you know, but, you I, know I, I used to have this idea. I said, why can't we suspend the Constitution just one day a year and take care of issues? That's, that's, that's a movie called The safe. Purge. Exactly. Yeah, that's that, the movie somebody, The Purge. Somebody stole that damn idea. I could yeah. be in Hollywood right now drinking fancy drinks with my pinky in the air. That's right. right. Well, well, let's talk about you getting started then in uh, Tulsa PD. So when you hit the streets, obviously everybody starts off, they go through FTO, but then you work you work the streets, uh, you know, you work uniform. What, what was your initial, like, uh, you know, two to three years like? Um, my first three years, I worked patrol in the northern part of our city, which was, you know, still to this day, the most statistically violent part of the city. Um, what, again, drives it? what drives the violence? Drugs, gangs? Drugs and gangsters. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I mean, we all know it pretty much, you know, most of your victims of violent crime are, it's lifestyle. You know, if you're involved in dope, you're involved in gangs. I um, mean, you take the domestics, you know, out of it. Most of the people that are victims of violent crime, again, it's just the lifestyle they're living. Um, but that area, you know, was what was at the time, especially then, was plagued by um, crack cocaine and gangs um, that were running up there. And so that was, you know, where I worked at my first couple of years. I loved it. Um, then I transitioned into that footbeat unit I spoke about earlier, patrolling the housing projects. Oh, this time with a gun and a badge. And, yeah, uh, I actually had authority. <laughs> the, the citizen arrest, you know, was behind me. Those days were behind. And nobody's going to call you fuck stick this time if you no, go chase a guy down. Yeah. Right? Well, they, they were, but it was bad guys. Yeah. You know? So. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, due to manpower issues, you know, our department had to get rid of certain units. We got rid of our mounted patrol and. Um, you know, we got rid of some of our specialty type units. The footbeat unit was one of them. And my supervisor I had at the time was going into our major crimes homicide unit in the evening shift. And he asked me if I wanted to go. And I thought, man, this is, this would be awesome to go work some murders and stuff like that. So at, you know, 26 years old or whatever it was, uh, I went in and, and about three or four months into, we have a shift change once a year and about three or four months into it, I was like, man, this is, uh, this is a little too slow paced for me at this point in my career. You know, I wanted to be out chasing bad guys. You mean, so, so the, the, just in terms of number of homicides and cases that are working, it just wasn't active enough? No, it's active. Um, so that, our, that unit, you work every unnatural death, um, you know, so suicides, um, homicides, but, you know, you would also go out on drownings, fatality, car accidents, just that type of stuff. Yeah, but, I mean, and that was had, more, having done that too, you know, as a detective, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's not kicking the door, running down bad exactly. guys. A lot of that's just, it's the investigative piece that's of it. A hundred percent. It's interviews and investigations and obviously a critical, important part, you know, of the job. And that's what, you know, gets that, that those type of cases through the court system and gets convictions and gets justice, you know, for families. It doesn't pump the blood though, man. It doesn't, it doesn't pump the, the blood. Rate. No. Yeah. So I'll, I'll put it this way. I was, um, I was driving, I had a, a, a um, a Ford Aerostar minivan, which was nice. <laughs> the soccer, what, the mom. Yeah, I, I went from a ninety-five. I went from a ninety-five Chevy Caprice with an LT1 to a minivan, and um, I was actually sticks. out. Everybody, walk away. You don't have to run. Yeah, Just here walk. I come. You know, wearing my brown brown dress shoes and a pair of you know khakis or Dockers and a collared shirt that says homicide on it. And I was up driving around one time, bored up north, and I was going through this uh, this 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 um, convenience store. And I see this gangster that I know, and he sees me, and he literally says, swear, sticks, they just, the Hoovers just pointed a gun at me. This guy was from the neighborhood Crips, another rival gang. And so I get behind this car, and it takes off, and I get on my handheld radio, because my car doesn't even have a mounted radio in it. 
And I'm like, hey, I'm behind a car. Car just did a PDW, pointing deadly weapon. And this car takes off for me. So I put my little flashers on. You know, I don't have an audible siren. Nobody's going to take that seriously. <laughs> hang, out the window. hang out the window and go, wee-woo, nope. wee-woo. Pretty much. That was it. Pull over. Pull over. <laughs> and uh, so they take off, and the car ends up hitting the curb. Guy bails. There's three guys in it. One of them was paralyzed from a previous shooting, so he didn't get out and run. He stayed in the car. Um, but the other two guys get out and run and I chase one of the driver and end up catching them and I get in a fight with them and I break my hand. Um, so I ended up in a cast. So I was the only guy, I think to this day that worked in our major crimes homicide unit that got in a pursuit and broke a hand still. So we knew it was even my sergeant. He was like, Hey man, you know, you need to get back out on the streets, man. That's where you should be. So I finished my year. I will say this learned a lot. Even as a young cop, I learned how to be a better uh, interviewer, you know, I learned how to process crime scenes, um, how to be better about documenting reports, evidence collection, you name it. Um, and you know, the things that were needed for court. Um, so when I went back out to the streets, you know, as a patrol officer later, and then even later becoming a supervisor myself, um, it was, it it was very, very beneficial to my career, even though I didn't want to be there at that time in it. Yeah, you, you know, and, and I think that's true for pretty much all detectives. You, you want to get that grade because it probably carries more money or some agencies it carries more money, but also that distinction or that mystique that goes along with all the uniforms. But honestly, the uniforms is where the fun is. Well, and that's it. Every uh, You know, despite all the different assignments that are on, you know, a police department, you know, and, and Tulsa is a, a Good sized department. You had asked. We we at the time I was on, we had a little over eight hundred officers, and I know our numbers are down right now. So I mean, we're we're a bona fide big city police department here in the country, and you have everything from canine to SWAT to narcotics to gangs to you know long list of detectives, public PIO, what you know, school resource officers, patrol officers, whatever it want to be, whatever there is. I'm saying. Anybody that goes into law enforcement, you know, you're you're like, man, I want to be a cop. I want to be a street cop. That's how you start out. You know, that's what you envision. Me, you're wearing the uniform, driving the black and white. Um, you don't, you know, as a 17-year-old kid go, man, I want to be a I want to be a in a motor- pair of dockers driving a minivan. Yeah. yeah, no, you definitely don't do that. You don't want to do that even as a 25-year-old, I'll tell you that. Because, you know, chicks dig uniforms, but something about oh, a guy yeah. in a minivan just doesn't quite do it, does it? Hey, I'll, I'll say this. When you talk about the uniform, it, it, uh, I like to think I have a decent style. I can dress myself well, not embarrass anybody I'm with. The beauty of the uniform, and in addition to it being slimming for some officers, um, it also hides how poorly some people dress because you, I will see somebody, whether it's in court or out in public, and I'm like, dude, who the hell picks your clothes out, man? You know, and that's why at least the uniform, they look good every single day. Oh, man, we have well, those you, guys. Go ahead, Murph. You remember how, I mean, people get to know you in uniform. They see you in plain clothes. Nobody oh, yeah. recognizes you. They walk right by yep. you. That got me yep. into trouble on my first marriage because I was working midnights as a rookie cop in Salina, Kansas. And we'd always go into this same restaurant, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning, eat dinner. And one of the waitresses there, nice lady, good looking. We show up one time in the evening. She started her shift like at 7 or 8 o'clock. And so two of us couples went out there. She goes, hi, Morgan. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you in your clothes. And I went, whoa, let's <laughs> oh, get back. Whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, right. yeah, I can no, explain, but, no, that, honey. I can explain. Yeah, hey, but I used to, when I was training some of the guys, too, or teaching the academy and stuff, so just remember, uh, you know, ugly guys look good in uniforms, too. Don't let it go to your head, you know. So, <laughs> That's it. Absolutely. It's true. <laughs> so you get back out onto the street and you start causing, you know, just 
burning a blue flame or were you guys, your uniforms were brown, weren't they? Um, when I first started, we actually, uh, we kind of looked like a, a park ranger. I was not a fan of it. Being growing grown up on the West Coast, all your municipalities out there pretty much wore that LAPD blue type of uniform. Yeah. Um, but Tulsa at the time, we had a green shirt and we had these taupe tannish pants with a green stripe. Um, and in 2005, we switched to basically that, you know, LAPD, you know, municipal blue you see in most larger cities across the country. We switched to that back in 2005. And it was nice because, though, I, personally, I was a fan of it. Um, you know, your old school guys that have been around forever, especially, you know, towards the latter part of their career, they're like, man, I don't want to switch. I've been in this uniform 25 years and now you're going to make me wear this my next couple. So I understood that. But it gave our whole department, you know, a new look because, hey, a lot of guys are cheap. Their uniforms are, you know, don't look the best and they don't want to spend the money on go out and buy new stuff or they don't have a supervisor that's like, hey, get your ass, you know, back home and get a new uniform on. Um, so at least gave our whole department a fresh, clean look at the time. And we've still been in that blue since 2005. Yeah, I, I was a fan of that too. I, uh, the one thing I loved about the State Patrol, all of our uniforms were custom tailored, actually by Battle mm-hmm. Uniform Company. It was out of Oklahoma. So yep, yep. we used to get all of ours from those guys. So you go back out, you hit the streets. So what do you end up doing after that once you start back out in your uh, green shirt and taupe pants with green stripe initially? So I actually went into a unit, a, a street crimes unit, which was kind of we handled street level narcotics, crack houses, and uh, you know prostitution and things like that. Um, did that for two years. Uh, loved it. Did hundreds. Was that plain clothes or uniform? It was plain clothes. So kind of blue jeans, you know, raid jacket for search warrants type of deal. Um, and again, that's still back in the crack cocaine was everywhere. And so, man, we were running like literally hundreds of search warrants a year. Um, and it was just, you were chasing bad guys. It was a blast. I loved it. Um, went back out to patrol for a year after that. And then I tested for sergeant was fortunate to, to get promoted on that list. Um, and when I became a sergeant, I had worked that North part of my, uh, city, my whole career. When I get made sergeant, they send me to the opposite side, which at first I hated it. Um, because Is it that was Osage around County or what? No, actually, uh, out towards, it was still Tulsa County, but it's out like where our restaurants and our mall are and all the traffic. It was Bunny, just the exact Bunny land. Yeah. It was the exact type uh, the exact opposite of policing I had done for my career up to that point. Um, totally different types of crime you were dealing with. I was dealing with larceny. You know, my, the officers working for me were going to larcenies and accidents and, you know, people calling in because their next door neighbor's Lexus was blocking their driveway. You know, that type of BS. Say, you're, nobody shot anybody today. What the hell? Yeah, what, that, that was Any exactly dope cases? What's happening? That was it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was. Are they crimes? Yes. But uh, to me, they just weren't, you know, crimes that I was, uh, I enjoyed working. But I will say this, as a brand new supervisor, I was in a new part of town around officers that I had never worked around before. So they didn't look at me as sticks. They looked at me as Sergeant Larkin. And I think it was really good for me as a brand new supervisor, um, you know, to kind of get myself figured out, established what type of supervisor I was going to be, what type of expectations I had. Um, and I was there for about a year and a half. And then I transferred into narcotics, was in narcotics for a year, and then moved into gangs where I was up until I retired. But, you know, when you went out there, and you know this, it's true from state, local, federal agencies, when the new guys coming in, phone calls are made. 
Everybody oh, yeah. wants to know what's what's the word on this guy? Is he a good guy? Stand up guy? Is he can you can trust him? You know, can you respect him? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, and uh, the unit or the 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 squad that I came into, um, it had just been right after you know our shift change basically. So I got promoted in July of '05, and our shift change started in August. Well, the squads had already been picked for the the, the new shift change from August of '05 through '06. And my squad ended up having, I think I had four or five people that had like 26 to 32 years on. Oh, geez. And then I had five rookies get cut loose that year out of two different academies. So I had brand, brand new cops that didn't know anything that would call me all the time asking questions as a rookie cop does because they don't want to mess up. And then I had the opposite. I had the old school guys that, you know, I never heard from. I saw them at squad meeting and I'd see them at the end of the night type of deal. Um, so I had the, I had a, you know, the book, I had both worlds there. Well, did the old farts, uh, at least give you grudgingly respect because you were this, I mean, these guys could have tested for Sergeant if they wanted to, they chose to sure. be where they were, right? Yeah, no, listen, Hey, I loved being a patrol cop. Um, you know, I tested, I mean, God, honestly, the reason I tested was there was somebody out of my Academy that I was not a personal fan of, um, of, who she was as a police officer because she was in my academy. I knew who she was. Didn't think highly of her then. Um, and the reason I decided to test, obviously financially it's better and things like that. But I had, my daughter had ended up in the pediatric ICU one year and uh, over Christmas. And so I had taken some time off dealing with that. And when I came back to work, this particular officer, I was I'm referring to, she had just promoted a sergeant and she was training in my squad as a sergeant. And so I come back and my first day back, she says she needs to do an inspection on my car. And so she's looking through my car, making sure, you know, you've got all the equipment you're supposed to have and stuff like that. And I'm sitting here looking at her and I'm like, this person had nothing to do with, I'm going to say, has nothing to do with her being a female. It was just this individual, right? This person I just didn't think was a very good officer and, uh, you know, shit. And I didn't think she should have even finished our Academy. And now she they have was a little to, bit of power. She promoted. And I was like, man, this is who's doing my inspection right now. This is who I'm going to have to answer to. And that, that, that pumped me inside to test. And so I took the very next test. So anyways, going back to it, I never had any problems with the older people, man. I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't there to mess with them, you know, held them, responsible for what they're supposed to be doing. They knew what the expectations were. And I was fair across the board to everybody, whether it was a brand new rookie or, you know, one of the senior officers. So um, I got along with everybody in there. You know, I think that's a, a reason that a lot of people promote. And, and for me, I would love being an agent. You know, I was uniformed for almost 12 years and then joined DEA. And I love being an investigator, you know, just a street agent. But the same thing. You see people getting promoted that are going to tell you how to run your cases who have never really yep. made a case themselves. It motivates Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And it could be an age thing, too, for me, as, as you're getting older. Yeah, we used to call them REMPs, R-E-M-Fs, rear echelon motherfuckers, people who yeah. love to sit in the swivel chair, be swivel chair commandos, yeah. know everything there is to know, but never worked. You know, that was when you and I were on your podcast, Sean, we we're talking about the work I was doing down at Justice, and that ended up being the National Integrated Ballistics Information Network. We got them to consolidate DEA, ATF, FBI, everything into one system. Right. And I remember sitting in those meetings with these people who were wanting to 
pontificate and going, well, we ought to do this. And I finally looked at him and said, when's the last time anybody here actually slapped a pair of handcuffs on somebody? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> it. I mean, we, we, yeah, we've kind of joked about it. You know, some of these people that have promoted, I mean, they need a GPS to tell them where the jail's at. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, dude, they've never taken somebody to jail. And here they are trying to tell officers how to do a case or what to do. And, you know, just as you're talking about, you know, part of that Nibin stuff. And I was at a, uh, a conference taught by DOJ. I can't remember. I think I might've been down in Florida, New Orleans or something like that. And there was an analyst up there for the DOJ that was sitting here talking street gangs and was like spitting all this out and showing all these pictures. I'm like, this person has never dealt with a gang member in their life ever, <laughs> you know, and they're up here just acting like they know it all. And I'm like, man, you're, you're an academic, you know, that's what you are. You've never dealt with one of these people before personally in your own life. And it was just kind of funny. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two. 